I came across this weird account of the time when the tomb of Charlemagne was opened. Charlemagne was also known as Charles the Great, and he was a, a unifier of much of Central and Western Europe. And about 180 years after his, his death, around the year 1000, orders were given to open his sepulcher. And as, as the servants walked into this room, Charles himself was surrounded by all his treasures. And there in the middle was a throne in which his skeleton, or his body at the time, was placed. And now it's a skeleton, and it has a crown still on its head. And on the lap of Charlemagne is the copy of the New Testament Gospels. And his bony finger is pointing to the question that was asked by Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Think about how surreal that must have been. You're, you're opening a sepulcher, and so this is already kind of weird. You don't know what you're going to encounter. You walk in, you see all these treasures. You see this great leader himself with a crown on his head, and he's pointing to a question that he wants anyone who's going to come and open his tomb to see. And it's this question that was asked by Jesus. It is a life-defining question. It is a reality-clarifying question. And we're going to take a look at that question this morning. Luke, the gospel writer, thought it worthwhile to not only compose and document the life of Jesus, but to include this question for us to consider. And it comes at a point when Jesus is calling his disciples into a further and deeper and more costly discipleship and following in his footsteps. And so we're going to call our study today, The Cross Before Me. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. So whether this is your first time kind of taking a serious look at Christianity or whether you've been raised around the teachings of Jesus, we're going to all find this very challenging this day. But the terms that Jesus gives us here are important for us to hear, and the stakes could not be any higher. So before we look at that, let's pause for just a moment and pray and ask God to teach us what he wants us to learn this day. So let's pray. Lord, what a scene that must have been when these officials opened the tomb of Charles the Great and entered and, and saw not only those treasures gathered around his throne, but this skeletal figure as well, pointing on his lap to a question uttered by Jesus. Help us to, to entertain that question this day to entertain it in such a way as if Jesus were asking us that question directly. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us to understand what he's saying in light of who he is. And I pray that you would give us the grace to respond. No matter where we find ourselves today spiritually, meet us here in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we look at this, just a brief comment on the context. Jesus has just spent some intense time in prayer before he was going to ask his disciples a very important question. And that question was, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who kind of serves as the spokesman for the disciples on so many occasions, responded by saying, you are the Christ of God. And that was exactly right. But Jesus said, do not tell this to anyone. And the reason why Jesus didn't want them telling this to anyone was because they had a faulty understanding of this notion of the Christ. They wanted a political savior who would over, overthrow Rome and, and liberate their nation. 
And Jesus has come to do a far, far deeper work than that. Their greatest problem was not Rome, but rather their alienation from God. And so Jesus tells them that he's the kind of king who will come and who will be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified. And he will rise again on the third day. And so the very next thing that Luke wants us to see is this. He, that is Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What a weighty statement that Jesus issues here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. In some ways, Jesus is saying, now that you know my true identity, that I am the Christ of God, and that you know that my mission entails coming and dying, and I will rise again on the third day, now that you know this, let me tell you, this knowledge may cost you everything in following me. So, if you come after me, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, there was a time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he invited people to follow him, to come and to listen to his teaching. And what was interesting is is people just dropped everything and followed him. And he was teaching them about the good news of the kingdom of God, about that coming day when God would set this world to right. And he begins doing these things in which the kingdom is manifesting around him, calling, we call these things miracles. And, And now Jesus ups the ante. Now they understand who he is. There's no longer a secret among his disciples that he has come and will die and rise again. He says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So let's think about these phrases. They're really saying the same thing, but from different angles. First of all, there's this call to deny yourself. Now, we know that self-denial is is many ways a good thing to do. Um, We know that sometimes we should Deny ourselves that extra helping of dessert, whatever. But here, Jesus is calling us to something a little bit different. And as I was just thinking about this 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 week, it's an interesting phrase, deny yourself. And the question that came to my mind is, who is the you who is denying you? And as I thought about that, I thought, when we come to understand who Jesus is and the life that he calls us to, we understand that there is a new creation that takes place when we become followers of Jesus. And so there's, in a very real sense, a real you, and there is a false you. The false you has a me-first agenda that must be denied by the real you that says to Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. The real you stands opposed to the false you. The real you is you in submission to Jesus, saying, you are my king. Your wish is my command. That's the real you. And there's this false you that is always calling you towards different things, that's always whispering, that's always lying. The Apostle Paul will later call this the flesh, or some translators translate it as the sinful nature. But the real you needs to deny the false you. And so he says, deny yourself, but he also says, take up your cross. Now, my friends, I cannot emphasize to us what a chill would have run down the spine of the disciples in hearing these words of Jesus. 
Those of us who've been around Christian circles, we've heard Jesus say this before. And so it kind of loses its impact for us. This would be the equivalent of Jesus saying, I want you to crawl up into the electric chair. I want you to prepare your veins for the lethal injection. I want you to go take your place in front of the firing squad. You see, to take up your cross meant that your future was over. Joel Green, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, said, taking up the cross in its Roman context would have referred literally to the victims carrying the crossbeam of the cross from the site of sentencing to the place of execution. People in that time were familiar with seeing people who were marched to their death carrying the cross on their back. A.W. Tozer, who was an American pastor in the first part of last century, once wrote these words. He said, To be crucified means first, the man on the cross is facing only one direction. Second, he's not going back. And third, he has no further plans of his own. That's a very clarifying way to think about what Jesus is, is calling them to here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the guy who was implicated in the resistance movement against Hitler, I once wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's a very real sense when Jesus says, when you understand who I am, everything changes. There has to be a death of yourself and a resurrection of your true self in order to follow me. And so this idea of taking up the cross, which could be literal, actually becomes a controlling, defining metaphor for us. Because here he says, take up your cross, four seven, after me, die to yourself. Stand against yourself and die to yourself daily. This is what your true self needs to do. And then he says, follow me. In many ways, I think that this is an invitation for the disciples to follow him no matter what the cost. He just told them that he is going to be betrayed by the religious leaders and he's going to die. They knew what that meant. And Jesus, in a sense, says, come and die with me. I wonder if, if this was what the Apostle Paul was thinking of later in his life. He was initially opposed to Jesus in his movement, persecuted the first Christians, oversaw the, the, the killing of the very first um, martyr of Jesus. But he would later become converted himself when he met Jesus, and then he would write these words to the Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You can say in one sense, Paul, when were you crucified? We never saw you nailed to a Roman cross. And you can say, well, I, I wasn't. But when Jesus called me, he called me to come and die, to die to myself. And so my old self has been crucified with Jesus, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And so Jesus gives this very clarifying call to follow in his footsteps. This is the cost of discipleship, or it was what one person called the cross of discipleship. And now he follows it up with three reasons why we ought to do this. And he says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. Now, this is an interesting 
statement that Jesus makes to his original disciples, and, and he's, in a sense, making it to us today. He wants us to hear these words. This is a critically important for us to understand. There is a way of living for yourself that will cause you, in the end, to lose yourself. And there is a way of dying to yourself that will cause you, in the end, to save yourself. And Jesus wants us to understand and to come to terms with what he is saying here. And this is centered on Jesus himself. Let's look at this phrase again and highlight just a few different words. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. Now, let's just think, if, if someone in this room said something like this, how crazy that would be. Let's say my friend Jerry over here walked in on a Sunday morning, and he said, hey, I just get your attention for just a moment. I want everyone to know that if, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you will actually save it. And that means you need to die. We could look at Jerry and we go, that's the craziest thing I've heard. <laughs> Who says things like that? But Jesus said things like this. He was very clear. He spoke in very certain terms. I think C.S. Lewis was reflecting on these when he gave his original radio addresses to um, Europe, and they were compiled in this book called Mere Christianity. He says, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, he says, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Look for yourself. This is so interesting. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. I think this is, in essence, what Jesus is saying. If you want to save your life, you, you will lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, <laughs> you will find it. You will find your true self. You will find your real self. And that's not the end of the story. In fact, if we think about this and we ask ourselves the question, what's the assumption at work here when Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake shall, shall save it? What's, what's at work here? What's the assumption? Death is not the end of the, the story. Death doesn't get the final say. Jesus just said, I, I want you to take up your cross and to die, to follow me to the point of death, even if that's what happens. Now that you know who I am, and if that happens, you will actually save your life in the end. Luke, later on in this gospel, is going to record further words of Jesus. When one time he tells the crowds, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. I think if I was in that crowd, I would have been like, what? <laughs> don't be afraid of those people who can kill the body? Yeah, Jesus says, don't, don't worry about that. If they kill your body... Big deal. That, that's, that's the worst they can do. In fact, when they do that, they can't do anything else to you. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about 
uh, that classic children's series by J.K. Rowling in which uh, her, uh, one of her protagonists, Professor Dumbledore, the wise Dumbledore, finally meets he who must not be named, Voldemort. And they're in this battle, and Voldemort tries to kill him and is unsuccessful. And Dumbledore strikes back, but not a lethal blow, which surprises Voldemort. And Voldemort asks him, are you not willing to kill me? And Dumbledore said, it would give me no mere pleasure to kill you, or merely to kill you. And Voldemort screams back, there is nothing worse than death. Dumbledore responds, you are quite wrong. Indeed, your failure, get this, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. What a line. Jesus would tell us there are things that are much worse than death. Death is a bad thing, no doubt. But there are things much worse than death. Like what, Jesus? Like saving your life to lose it in the end. In fact, Jesus goes on and says this in verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What, a, what an amazing, terrifying question. Think about this, my friends. If on this side of the scale, you could put all the wealth that you could possibly gather more treasures than kings have, vacation homes, trips around the world, reputation, power, prestige, everything in the entire world could be yours. And on the other side of the scale is Jesus. Which would you take? Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses himself? Loses his life, loses his soul. I can't help but wondering if the ancient words from the book of Ecclesiastes spoken by the wise King Solomon wasn't reverberating in his mind to some extent. Jesus, of course, knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. Here in Ecclesiastes, we're told, all men are from dust, and to dust all return. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth with his income, nor he who loves wealth with his income. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go naked as he came and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Here's this man who was one of the richest men in the ancient world who says, look, we are all from the dust and we are all going to the dust. He says, paraphrasing Jesus in so many words, what profit is there if you gain the whole world? In the end, you will still pass away. You will go back to dust. James, the brother of Jesus, would put it like this in his letter. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Jim Elliott, the martyr who gave his life seeking to reach the headhunters in Ecuador, once wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those words are so true. He's echoing exactly what Jesus says. And so Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
Jesus here is telling us, your life is very valuable. You can gain the entire world, but if you, if you lose yourself, if you lose your soul, you've lost the most valuable thing. And then Jesus says this, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is a very uncomfortable verse, isn't it? The temptation is to, to, to jump in and, and to explain it away, to qualify it with a thousand qualifications so that it, it loses its sting. And yet Jesus wants to be heard loudly and clearly. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is pointing to a time beyond his crucifixion and his resurrection to a time when he will return in glory. What will he find? What will he find in us? So Jesus says, do not be ashamed of me. I want to qualify this and explain it away in so many different ways to make it more palatable, to make it not as, as attention-grabbing but Jesus wants us to hear this. And so I wonder if we can hear this asked directly of us. My friends, are you ashamed of Jesus? I know maybe not here you're not, but if it costs you something, do you find him shameful, this, this one who loves you? And gave himself for you. I ask that question of you, but I ask it of myself as well. There have been times where I found myself biting my tongue, closing my mouth when I should have opened it. There are times when I should have stood up and spoken for Jesus when that moment was given me. But I was worried about what people might think. Jesus, on the night that he would be betrayed by his close disciples and his, his friends, said this to them. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. My friends, as uncomfortable as those words we read were, Jesus nevertheless called his original disciples who in a, in a matter of moments would be ashamed of him. He calls them his friends and he tells them he's going to lay down his life for them. So I don't know what to do with this other than to understand that in a very real sense, D Jesus is, is willing to die for our shame of him as well. And that, my friends, is good news. Remember, all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him in his moment of need when he was arrested. They all fled for their lives precisely so they wouldn't end up on the cross next to Jesus. And yet Jesus nevertheless loved them and gave himself for them. He took their shame and their sorrow and made them his very own. And he bore that burden to Calvary where he suffered and died alone. 
Jesus, verse 26 Ask this actually, verse 27. He says this, I wonder what you think of this. He says, I, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is interesting. Jesus says there are some among his disciples right there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean by that? I'm so tempted to jump in here and, and, and let's do like an in-depth Bible study, but I'm actually going to put this on hold. <laughs> We're going to put this on hold for about seven weeks until we pick up the Gospel of Luke again and we begin to get that answer. But it has to do with the glory of Jesus and a crown of thorns. And so let's ask this question. Why does Luke record these challenging and, let's just admit it, very uncomfortable words from Jesus? in his historical biography of Jesus. What is he wanting us to see here? What is he wanting us to, to do with these words? He, he's painstakingly pointing, or painting the portrait rather, and pointing to the reality of who Jesus is. He's been asking this question and answering it for us all along. Who is this man? And now he's telling us that Jesus is the one that we ought to live for and, if necessary, die for. Or to put it very directly, he is the king who lived for us and died for us. Therefore, we should live for him and, if necessary, die for him. Or to put it slightly differently, real life is found in living for and dying for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? A couple points of application as we wrap this up. The first point of application is simply this. Remember, you are going to die. These are words that I spoke at a dinner party a few weeks ago when I was uh, together with some friends and there's some, some young people there as well. And one was a university student wrapping up his time here at A&M. And my wife and I were joking about how time flies and it was just not long ago that we were students and now we're old people. And, and this young man asked the question, what kind of advice would you give to me where I am at this station in my life. And so I said, remember, you are going to die. There's people right now going, do not ask the pastor over for dinner. Don't get <laughs> coffee with that man. <laughs> we are all going to die. Unless Jesus returns before that happens, we are all going to die. And so in one sense, we need to come to grips with that. As I explained to that young man, there's this ancient Christian tradition of remembering death. There's a psalm that prays this prayer to the Lord. Teach me to number my days so that I may know how to live. The fact that we will one day die ought to give us wisdom for how we ought to live. Not that death itself is a teacher. Death just has by itself nothing but bad news. But death, understood in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, can become an amazing teacher for us. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? My friends, when we understand who Jesus is and what he did for us and the price he's willing to pay on the cross and to come to life again and be crowned by God as the king of the universe, we understand that death is never the end of the story. And if we have to go through that ourselves, we are welcomed into the arms of Jesus. 
we have to go through it because of our association with Jesus. There is a crown of life in store for us. I love what Elizabeth Elliot said, the, the woman who was married to Jim Elliot, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Elizabeth Elliot said this, of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. So my friends, remember that you and I will both die. Let's remember death. And let's live our lives in light of that coming death. And if, and if we have to give our lives for Christ, may we be faithful to the very end. Second point of application, my friends, go all in with Jesus. Jesus, in many ways, in very certain terms, is asking his disciples to risk everything on him. To go all in, to, to, to cash in their chips with Jesus, so to speak. And, and the same happens for us today. That the question of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and his resurrection confronts each and every one of us with the question, what will we do with Jesus? Will we go all in with him? We're called to, to risk everything on him. Leslie Newbigin, who was a, a missionary to India, once wrote these words. He said, I am in Pascal's famous phrase, wagering my life on the faith that Jesus is the ultimate authority. My answer is a confession. I believe. The Christian commitment, he says, is distinguished in that it is a commitment to a belief about the meaning of the whole of human experience in its entirety. Namely, the belief that this meaning is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, and destined to reign over all things. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. If you understand who I am, go all in with me. So here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus can deliver on his promise of eternal life? I get this magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs, and it, it chronicles persecution of Christians around the world. And sometimes it has stories of people who have given their lives, the, the ultimate uh, sacrifice for Jesus. And as I read through this magazine, I'm, I'm often asked the question, what would I have done if I was in that position? It's easy for me, in the comfort of, of Bryan College Station, to think, yeah, I could do that. But what happens when the knife is placed at my throat? Will I be faithful to the very end? And for me, it all comes down to this. Do I believe that Jesus can deliver on his promise of eternal life? By God's grace, I hope that I do. So my friends, remember that you are going to die. Let's go all in with Jesus. And here's the last point of application. Offer yourself, body and soul, to King Jesus. To believe that he is the resurrected king. To believe that he has promised us eternal life. That he calls us to be faithful to the very end. Calls for a response where I simply say, I am not my own Jesus. But I belong body and soul in life and in death to you. I think this is what Paul was getting at when he said, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He, by the way, wrote these words sitting in prison to Christians who were being persecuted for the faith. He didn't know if he was going to get out. He thought maybe he would. But there standing before him is this question. 
Will you be faithful to the end? And so he says, look, if I live, it's all about Jesus. And if I gain, if I die, <laughs> there's nothing but gain. That's why I love the words from the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first catechism question, which is a tool uh, that Christians have used throughout the ages, um, since the Reformation, I should say, uh, to help teach the Christian faith. And so it asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So here's, here's the response of the heart. He died for me, therefore I will live for him. He bore the cross for me, now I will bear the cross for him. Now, Jesus had to bear the cross for us in a certain way, having our sins placed upon him. But we may have to die to ourselves daily and our own demands that our false self makes. And so we bear that cross as well. Let me conclude by referring to the artist known as William Somerset Maugham. He was a poet, a writer of short stories and novels, very well known in his day and very, very wealthy. In fact, at the time of his death, he was still very wealthy, and he had uh, handmaids and, and servants all around him. And this account originally appeared in the, in the London Times, written by uh, Robin Mon, who was his nephew. And he said, when he visited him, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success, he called him Willie, that Willie's, Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, the fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 600,000 pounds. Willie had 11 servants, including a cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. This is what he said. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I came across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting, all the same. And Robin described how in his old age, Somerset mom grew bitter and angry, and he repeatedly would cry out in terror, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. He was a man who in very real sense had gained the whole world all the wealth that he could spend in 10 lifetimes, sitting there looking at the words of Jesus, saying, of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but isn't it interesting all the same? My friends, may you wager your life on the one who is the resurrection and the life. Remember that you will die. And if you believe in Jesus, you will rise again. So go all in with Jesus. 
And may you offer yourself body and soul in life and in death to the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords.